So I don't know how you responded yesterday when you saw the news that Joe Biden announced that in his mind we could uh, give 100 million vaccines by the end of May and he's bought or America has purchased 300 million vaccines for some point in the not too distant future. One of my immediate responses was I went to the Cubs schedule for the second half of the season and just went, ah, you know, they're, they're, uh, it's not promised, but uh, it was just a nice thought. Yeah, I have been really on top of this vaccine stuff because I want to get mine as soon as possible. I, I feel like that's my ticket into Wrigley Field <laughs> so I can sit in the bleachers. Um, I don't know if, you know, when that's going to happen or what those tickets are going to look like or what capacity rules are going to be or anything else. But I feel like the I hate shots. Like, shots are my least favorite thing. And I am willing to get two of them to get back into the Wrigley Field bleachers. Big, big same, yes. Like, shots, like, ever since I was a kid, shots, like, terrified the hell out of me. That, that When I was going into high school, just to tell a personal story for a second, my mom had told me that as part of the physical for going into high school, I would be getting a booster shot, one booster shot. And so, like, that was, like a lot of mental preparation just for that one thing. And I went to the physical and went all through it and we got to the end and the doctor brought in three syringes. And then about 15 seconds later, had to go and get my mom to then come in the room and tell me why I was getting three times the shots that I had prepared for. So yeah, not a fan, <laughs> but I will eagerly, eagerly show up for both doses of whatever I get, or maybe just the one Johnson and Johnson, if that gets approved, especially with the idea that, you know, if we can get this with some point of the baseball season uh, left to go, like get me the vaccines, give me the amount of time I need to wait for them to take full effect. And then sadly, Tom Ricketts, please take my money. <laughs> well, you know, he's, he's very poor. They've <laughs> suffered losses and he needs your money desperately. It's how billionaires work. They need our money desperately. Yes. You know, it, it's part of the, part of the, you know, if he's having biblical losses, then do our ticket purchases count as tithes? <laughs> For the church of baseball, I guess. Yes. <laughs> Andy Savoy. Yes. Excellent. Uh, but yeah, um, I, it, it does give me something, a bit of incentive and something to look forward to, which, you know, in these uncertain times, I, I will take that in a heartbeat. That, uh, and that I was looking at the schedule and there's like, you know, a, a Cardinals series right before the All-Star break and then a four-gamer with the Brewers the first week in August. And like, if, you know, if I could get, get either of those, like that would be, I mean, hell, I would take the goddamn Rockies at this point, but it, any of those would be so far ahead of the game, it would feel like. And, and you've, we've had this discussion before, you know, have you thought about that first moment walking back in up the ramp and kind of seeing the ballpark again for the first time? Like, I know that's going to be a moment for me. I assume it's going to be for you too. I mean, I already cry when I walk into the <laughs> ballpark and see it. So I don't know what this is going to be, but it's probably going to be full on sobbing ridiculousness. And I'm just going to ugly cry in the bleachers <laughs> at Wrigley Field. and You all are going to have to deal with it. Yeah, I, I have to imagine that there's going to be some kind of extra bit of training if, if they open the park this year for all the Cubs ushers just to say, yeah, let's give people space for emotional breakdowns. Just... <laughs> yeah, they need some special training to take care of all of us. 
Like the, I think the last time I ugly cried at Wrigley, sadly, was game six of 2003. But uh, that's for an entirely different purpose. We don't need to go there at this moment. Yeah. No. Let's open the show and then jump into what's been going on this week. This is the Three Strikes You're Out podcast, part of the Outsports Podcast Network, the Outsports Baseball Podcast, episode number 62. Dig this, the Bob Howry episode of Three Strikes You're Out. My name is Ken Schultz, contributing writer to Outsports Baseball Prospectus and stand-up comedian who can't wait to get two shots at some point. The other voice you are hearing is a frequent guest and friend of the pod, host of the Cup of Cubby Blues podcast and contributor to Bleed Cubby Blues, Sarah Sanchez is back. Sarah, great to see you again. It's awesome to see you too, Ken. I wish that we could see, I can't wait till we can see each other in person at a baseball game, hanging out, keeping score, arguing about, you know, whether that was an error or a hit. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, I mean, hanging out last year just to hear the organ outside of Wrigley was, that was heavenly. So like the the fact that we could actually get in the ballpark this year is what is the step above heavenly at this point? I don't know, but I'm here for it. And I'm pretty sure I ugly cried when we heard the organ too. So I'm just like, I'm a mess. I am a COVID (laughs) mess. Not that I've had COVID or anything, just like the pandemic because I cry at the drop of a hat. Even if you don't have COVID, we all have COVID brain at this point. So crying at the drop of a hat, understandable in just about any context, even one where everyone else is singing Sweet Caroline. <laughs> yeah, so what, Sweet Caroline. I remember. I think that's how they closed out the organ. It was great. Yeah, yeah. Or I, What a I, Wonderful World. What a Wonderful what a, World yeah. was the last song, but Sweet Caroline was like the penultimate song. And it was, it kind of reminded you of being at Fenway where Sweet Caroline gets played in the eighth inning, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, and so uh, let's segue kind of on the subject of ugly brains to uh, the big baseball story from this week. Um, we spent the entire offseason watching, you know, typical of the past three or four years, total non-action, just sitting there thinking somebody sign somebody, you know. So for many weeks, I've been hoping, wouldn't it be nice to see somebody sign a record-breaking contract? And then we get the news this week, Trevor Bauer is getting $40 million from the Dodgers. And my first thought is, not that guy. Careful well, what you wish for. First of all, how petty is Trevor Bauer that <laughs> the way he structures this deal is so that it's front-loaded, so he gets most of the money up front, so he can go to Garrett Cole, who's like his college pitching rival, and say, I make more money than you. For the moment right now, even though if you divided the contract equally, that might not be the case. Anyway, whatever. Like, I'm over the Trevor Bauer show. I've been over it for a long time. I, at this point, it seems pretty clear. He's just not a nice person. And he doesn't feel compelled to be a nice person. And that's fine. Like, I don't need my, I don't need every athlete in the world to be Mr. or Mrs. Congeniality. Like, that's fine. But he just takes pride in it in such a way. And, you know, I was looking, and I think Stephanie Epstein from Sports Illustrated was the one who tweeted this. I apologize if I'm going to get this incorrect. But his press conference where he, you know, unveils himself as a Dodger in his uniform and all that jazz yesterday, lots of national writers there, lots of people asking him about his history of social media harassment and what that means. And she characterized his response as, I'm sorry if I said anything that made women feel blah, blah, blah. It's like, come on, Betty. That is like bad apology 101. <laughs> this is not how you apologize. You apologize for something by saying, I'm sorry. I did X. It was wrong. I won't do it again. You don't, 
I'm sorry if I said something that made you feel is like, it's just not an apology. I don't know what to say. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't expect anything else, but I, it's not an apology. It's, it's the classic, sorry if anyone was offended kind of apology, which then kind of puts the onus on anyone who was upset to think, well, is it my fault that I was upset because Trevor Bauer was incredibly transphobic or Trevor Bauer decided to sick all of his followers on one poor college girl in Houston, both of which, by the way, he has done. This, this is for those who haven't followed the Trevor Bauer story as close. And I don't blame you for not following because he's kind of a piece of shit. Um, it, it's... I three friends women who write for the Mets who have been very like outspoken about the fact that they didn't want Trevor Bauer on their team frankly if the Cubs were willing to spend money I would have spent the offseason being very outspoken I don't want Trevor Bauer on the Cubs either all three of them at various points in the offseason have had to lock their accounts have had their Twitter accounts like overrun by Bauer stands it's and they're not saying anything wrong. They're not saying anything false. They're not saying anything that hasn't happened. They just had the audacity to tweet the man's name. Like if you're a woman writing in this industry, if you're a person who is not like a, you know, white male standard writer, you basically have to like spell his name differently or asterisk it or else you run the risk of facing like three days of your Twitter account being unusable. Mm -hmm. And that's just ridiculous. It's insane to me on many levels that Trevor Bauer has that many stands that follow him, partly because, I mean, as we've been discussing, he is genuinely kind of not a good person. So I, I guess that attracts a certain Twitter follower right there. But also in terms of as a baseball player, like, yeah, he won the Cy Young last year. He's had two good years out of six or seven at this point. Well, and one of those seasons was 60 games. So it's like... Yeah. Does it like, yes, congratulations on your Cy Young that you won for a third of a season, I guess. I don't, I frankly, I'm, sh I'm stunned <laughs> that any team would give him that amount of money. I, I don't think that he has demonstrated a track record where that's the payout he deserves. I, I'm not trying to be a jerk here. I just, I, I was on a couple of fantasy baseball podcasts this week. I've been trying to up my fantasy game. It's one of my things I'm going to. Uh, dive into a little bit in 2021. I'm excited to write about like playing in some industry leagues, that type of stuff. But, you know, he's going in like the first round or mm -hmm. at the very end of the first round in fantasy baseball drafts right now. And that is too high because if you're taking a starting pitcher in the first round, it better be like Jacob deGrom. Yeah. It should not be Trevor Bauer who you're not sure is actually 2020 Trevor Bauer because you don't have enough innings to prove it. And I just, I mean, look, props to him for promoting himself, I guess. People, enough people bought into it that his fantasy draft stock is rising and he got his huge contract and he convinced the Dodgers to front load it so he can tell Garrett Cole he makes more money than him for a couple of years. I mean, congratulations. <laughs> if that's what makes your day, like, do it. But all of that sounds extremely risky and immature to me. So just not yeah. here for it. Yeah, and uh, we'll, I guess, going into the baseball logistics of this, and we'll keep diving in and out of kind of the bigger and more important scheme of things as, as we discuss this, that the Dodgers, this is the first time since they've become kind of the Dodgers, all capital letters over the past few years, where it feels like it's almost like a drastic overreaction to somebody, a move that other teams in their division are making. Like, this feels like they did this because they felt they had to make a move in the wake of the Padres going all in on this year. And... 
I don't necessarily think that this is the move for them to make that, that benefits them the best. They already have the best pitching in their division. I think even with you and with Snell going to the Padres, I think the Dodgers, given the quality and depth, the depth they had, which had demonstrated throughout the entire season last year and really the past several, they're only adding on to their biggest strength. And I'm kind of over teams deciding to that the best way to become World Series winners is to add even more to what was their best feature during the offseason. I think that at a certain point becomes overkill for something that you already were going to do well. And it ignores like the fact that they do have weaknesses and they should be addressing those instead of building on to what was the core strength of their team. Like they still are going to have a hole at third base if they don't have Justin Turner back. Their bullpen is still very much in the air. You can't really count on Kenley Jansen over the course of 162 at this point. So yes, their starting is going to be incredible and they should have good depth in certain places, but they're leaving and ignoring a few key parts of the team that could bite them in the ass this year. You know, I, so in 2016 and even before, I actually had a lot of respect for the Dodgers. The Dodgers are not my favorite team by any stretch of the imagination, but they put they pulled themselves out of the Araldis Chapman sweepstakes because of his domestic violence accusations and suspension. They kind of put themselves out there as like, we're going to be the good guys. Mm-hmm. And then we find out all this stuff that was going on with Alex Verdugo mm-hmm. in the background. You know, Gabe Kapler kind of goes to Philadelphia and we hear all the stuff that Kapler was covering up in his time there before he goes to the Giants. And now it's just kind of like, y'all are clearly just as evil as everybody else. Mm -hmm. We're just doing a better PR job of trying to hide it with this like one player that you wouldn't touch. And I'm just sort of over it. I mean, the Dodgers are willing to be the villains. That's fine. I already, when you and Victor Caratini went to the Padres, decided that the Padres are my West Coast team. Uh, I bought a sweatshirt. I'm so excited for it to arrive. (laughs) And I'm trying to get a friend in San Diego to go to the Padres team store where they have these I love you shirts that have this very like seventies vibe that I, I've never needed anything more than this. I love you shirt. Um, I don't know, man. I be, be you Dodgers do what you do, but I agree with you. They, they don't have a third baseman right now. They definitely need more bullpen help. Trevor Bauer makes them less likable. And I'm not, in, I mean, uh, yes, obviously he's better than ever, they were going to throw in their four or five spot or whatever. But I just, I don't know. It's hard to get excited about Trevor Bauer on the Dodgers. Yeah. I just think back to several famous instances of this, you know, with of course the Cubs back the 2003 into 2004, where they decided that their rotation was already great. And then they brought Maddox back. And then there was, of course, the team put out the ad as soon as they could, you know, how is this for a starting five with all five of them? And everybody got excited and they won one more game in 2004 with the, the killer rotation because they didn't address their deficiencies. You know, 2011 Phillies, one of the best regular season teams of all time, added Roy Oswalt and to, you know, the Halliday, Cliff Lee, uh, and Cole Hamels, just the, the killer rotation. And they went out in the division series because playoff baseball works that way. So I... Yeah, I, I'm sure there are examples of teams stacking their, already their strength and going all the way, but it certainly doesn't guarantee you a thing. And it's when you're bringing in 
everything that Bauer, the baggage that he brings along with him that uh, I mentioned before, uh, that we, we talked about him harassing college student fans on Twitter. And I wanted to also specify that he's fond of a trope, or he was fond of a trope, I'm not, not sure how often he's done it recently, of when someone accuses him of writing something terrible on Twitter, which he does a lot, he'll say, well, I identify as a 12-year-old and you have to respect that, which is, you know, pretty much mocking the idea of, of how trans people have to inform us how they self-identify in order for us to address them in the way that, that oh, oh, it reflects who they are. Uh, and he's done this on multiple occasions. Craig Calvicatera pointed this out on Twitter last night. And I didn't really realize until he did that, yeah, Trevor Bauer does include transphobia among his lists of online hatreds. And as someone who writes for Outsports, I mean, that's, you know, you're heading into shilling territory at that point. Oh, it's it's far beyond that. I mean, he's he said terrible things about global warming. He said terrible things about trans people. And he says terrible things about women. It's just like, the list is, I, you know what? It reminds me of like, if Barstool was an athlete, yeah. He's like, that's his demographic. That's his whole shtick, right? And that's another website where when they're talking about things, they retweet things, whatever. Like, I just stay far, far away. I, I, I don't think I've ever tweeted the word Barstool because I don't want them anywhere near my account. Uh, I think that somebody from Barstool once, like, retweeted something of mine. I had a panic attack, like, oh, God, here they come. And it was fine. It was It was innocuous. I just tweeted like a video that they liked or something, but <laughs> the, people shouldn't have to feel that way. Right. And it is problematic as all hell that this guy insists on being out there and talking all the time about just taking pot shots at people who he perceives as being beneath him and who, people who are really dealing with things that they don't need the extra baggage, man. Like mm -hmm. just, just keep your mouth shut and don't be a mean person, right? I mean, what you're saying about, you know, I have a few friends and, you know, I'm a former teacher. So I have a few former students who have come out as trans in recent years. And that's a celebration for them. That's something that they get to finally be themselves. And it's so hard for them to tell us that. And so I really just love that they get embraced by so many people in our community when that happens. But then to see these people off at the side making, trying to make their existence harder just makes me angry. <laughs> like, yeah. why, would you, why would you go out of your way to make someone's life harder because you think it's a good joke? Yeah, it, it's punching down from a position of, especially at this point, considerable power. And I think the Barstool Comp is a real good one. That I would imagine that the overlap, the Venn diagram of Trevor Bauer stands and Barstool readers is almost a perfect circle at this point. Also, uh, also overlapping people who probably don't know what a Venn diagram is, so. <laughs> like Googling Venn diagram. <laughs> I mean, the other part of this that is interesting to talk about is his agent, because there's this real tension in terms of like, he has a woman agent, so therefore we must raise up all women. And the thing is that some women are actively like engaging in misogynistic practices mm -hmm. <laughs> and not helping the situation. Yeah. And I, I am real skeptical of the idea that just because someone happens to have a certain gender, we have to accept everything that they say. 
particularly when that person is supporting and raising up people who are actively harming other people. Yeah, it's and it's really it's not a feminist thing either. If when people legitimately criticize you for legitimate misogyny online, the first thing you do is point to your agent and go, hey, look, woman, ovaries right there. So (laughs) I mean, it reminds me of in 2015 during the campaign that was or 2016 during the campaign that we were all like, yikes, and everything was terrible those last Four years, a relative of mine who was a Trump supporter um, was trying to say that I needed to support Kellyanne Conway because she was a woman running this campaign. And I'm just like, I don't actually like I do not need to blindly support. This is not how identity politics works. And this is not how raising people up works. And this is not how doing good works. You you do not need to just blindly support certain people when they're actively doing harm and supporting things that will harm Millions of people who yeah. are already struggling. Like that specific person, certainly in the case of Kellyanne and, and Trevor Bauer's agent too, obviously they specifically get benefits, but it, that doesn't mean that those benefits, and I'm going to use the keyword trickle down to the rest of the marginalized group in that instance. Absolutely. 100% agree. Yeah. And, and uh, one more and I guess we're going to go back towards a, a baseball problematic part of Bauer too at this point is when you're signing him for this kind of money and you're making him the centerpiece of your offseason, you you're also counting on the fact that yeah at, at, uh, you were making gestures and at, I think that this is where we're headed. You got to count on the fact that whatever substance he's putting on the end of his fingers is still going to be there this year because it's pretty clear based on what we know about the way his spin rate jumped last season that there's something going on little bit oh he told us I mean what was it two off seasons ago three off seasons ago whatever Trevor Bauer noted like ball experimenter whatever decided to see if what was going on with the Astros spin rates because he was again this goes back to like some college rivalry he has with Garrett Cole that I just find how in your head is Garrett Cole that like your whole off season is designed around figuring out his spin rate so that you can duplicate it later and buddy like chill it's gonna be okay but anyway yes so he like goes and he does these experiments and he demonstrates that the only way he can find to make your spin rate jump at those levels is by using sticky substance substances that's an interesting finding it's frankly one of the most interesting things that trevor bauer has ever done Hmm. Um, aside from giving up that home run to chris bryant in the world series in 2016 that was also a very interesting thing that trevor bauer did i'll always be grateful for that one (laughs) um the So for his spin rate to then jump a season later at exactly the rates that he demonstrated needed substances in order to jump, I I don't even know how you endorse that, right? Like you're literally saying, yes, we're going to endorse a pitcher using foreign substances for our benefit. Are we just supposed to not say anything about that? Like we do not see the man behind the curtain. Is this like when Yadier Molina had the ball stuck to his chest protector? And he's like, I have no idea how that happened. (laughs) What? What do you mean you have no idea how that happened? I know how that happened. You put something on your chest protector that lets the ball stay in a zone that makes your defense better. And we're just not supposed to talk about it because nobody wants to have a controversy over the Cardinals beloved Yadi. Like, come on, buddy. We all see it. The, the ball sticks to Yachty's chest protector because he respects the game so much that the baseball doesn't want to leave his body. 
it, it just it's almost like it's it's a separate part of him it's attached at the abdomen at that point it's like he's giving birth to baseball that's how much he respects the game let's get that I, image out of our heads right now i'm sorry about that i withdraw the <laughs> the best part of that is that the cubs won that baseball game because yadi cheated because <laughs> the ball stuck to his chest protector and he couldn't find it matt caesar instead of striking out winds up at first base and then ultimately scores and the cubs literally won because <laughs> yadi was cheating that's one of my favorite baseball moments of all time. But to go back to the Bauer part of this, which is where we were and where we're, what we're talking about, when you know something like that about a player, you know that they're using foreign substances, you know that they're getting a leg up in this way, you have to think that at some point, some opponent is going to watch for that and talk to an umpire about it during a game. You know, I was talking to my mom recently. Um, we were at the Joe Necro Emory board game. That is the first baseball oh, yeah. game I went to as a kid. So I'm a little kid. I'm like, we're, it's a Disneyland trip, but we decided to go to an Angels game. And it's my first major league baseball game. And I'm sitting there in the late innings trying to figure out what is going on and why this yeah. game is delayed as the Emory board comes flying out of his pocket onto the field, right? And my poor mom and Aunt Dawn are trying to explain to me, my two cousins and my brother, what's going on. And they're not really sure either because this is such a weird event to have happen, but it just sort of feels like Trevor Bauer is an Emory board waiting to happen, yeah. right? Like at some point, somebody's going to see something that they can point out to an umpire and there's going to be an embarrassment for the Dodgers. Yeah. It's a thing. I mean, I, that you mentioned the Joe Necro game. And it's funny that I also specifically remember seeing highlights of that in the basement of my grandparents' house with my grandpa, like watching baseball highlights late one night. And we see the Emory board flying out of his pocket as the umpire's inspecting his glove is he, he reaches in I think and then just kind of drops his hand and the emery board drops to the ground and hope nobody noticed this thing that just happened as as the most ball player thing possible so yeah it's weird how we both have like specific sense and memory of that particular moment and I have to think that in the case of Bauer given the fact that there are a fair number of ball players who kind of hate his guts at this point but obviously Garrett Cole but also I, there was mentioned today on one of the athletic stories that uh, old Cleveland teammates used to refer to their team as 24 guys and Trevor. So there are people <laughs> that, that know what he does and that are going to be playing him at some point and might know what to watch for. Uh, it, it's going to be a matter, I think, too, because we know that uh, it's so prevalent in the game right now based on some of the reporting that's been done, especially this offseason, that I think teams are going to have to also make certain that they don't have a guy on the mound facing them that day who is also using substances because we know baseball works that if you make our guy check uh check uh check the mound on uh when our guy's doing it then we're definitely going after one of the guys your guys that we know but but yeah like i absolutely could see that at some point see bauer dominating and then someone happens to call attention to maybe the substance he's using on his forearm that day or behind the cap or in his hair uh, and it's weird that you mentioned, too, I hadn't really put it together until we've kind of had the discussion this morning, that there's some fatal attraction shit going on with Trevor Bauer and Garrett Cole. Like, Garrett Cole's going to wake up one morning and find a boiled rabbit on his stove <laughs> whenever the Dodgers are in town playing the Yankees in interleague. Like that, yeah, it's, it's bizarre. I, the only thing I could guess is that because Garrett Cole seems like such a baseball guy type, 
that he was probably really popular with his teammates in UCLA and Trevor Bauer was Trevor Bauer and has kind of been using that against him, held that against him and using it as motivation since then. I'm, I'm sure it has fueled him for like however many years it's been since they were there. Well, whereas Garrett Cole probably didn't think about it again until it became a story, right? It's one of those things where one guy just like sits there and fixates on it forever. And the other guy's like, what, <laughs> what is going on? Right here, you know, you were talking about players and sort of the clubhouse dynamic, 24 guys and Trevor Bauer. I remember the game where Bauer gave up a home run and then like promptly launched a ball to yeah. center field or whatever in a fit, uh, like a tantrum. And he was not an Indian for long after that. I mean, I, I can't imagine that Terry Francona was all, all that impressed mm -hmm. with Bauer's temper tantrum on the mound. And I think that that was probably it for his day's in Cleveland, but I don't remember who I was talking to about this. One of my friends on Twitter had mentioned when the signing happened that, you know, the, the dynamic that the Dodgers had last season was actually pretty cool um, with Mookie Betts. And when, if you remember the day of the wildcat strike, where the, a lot of teams sat out after the Kenosha shooting, um, the Dodgers response to this was so great. And I remember it vividly because it was the antithesis of the Cubs response, which I thought was terrible. And, you know, while the Cubs let Jason Hayward sit out on his own, which is still the most heartbreaking thing that the Cubs have ever done, in my opinion, for me as a fan, that was a moment that just, I, I had a real hard time with the team at that moment. And with my fandom at that moment, still not something yeah. I'm completely over, but what the Dodgers did was the, was the polar opposite, right? Like Mookie said, I'm not going to play. And, Clayton Kershaw and the other leaders in the team were immediately like, if Mookie doesn't play, we all don't play. That's it. And they just didn't even, there was no question. There was no debate. There was no like, we're, well, what about some guys do this and other guys have different politics or anything like that. It was just kind of the leader stood up and did it. And I just don't know how Trevor Bauer fits in that dynamic, right? I'm not saying, I don't know what his personal politics are around all of those things. I mean, I think that his Twitter account gives us a insight into that that we could all guess. make some, yeah. we could make some guesses on i have a hard time seeing how he fits in that dynamic where you've got a leader and really a leader in the game right like Mookie Betts is one of maybe three or four players who you could make a real strong argument is the face of baseball mm -hmm. <laughs> and you bring in Trevor Bauer yeah. <laughs> i hate everything about this for the Dodgers oh, yeah. again i'm not a Dodgers fan but like this is not this is not good for them. Yeah, and it, that, that's a very good point because the Dodgers already have several faces on that team and in many components. Mookie Betts being the superstar that was brought in last year to win the World Series, who got the job done. You have an, a, on the pitching staff, you have two guys at least who are very much the more the face of that staff. Obviously, Clayton Kershaw, the legend, and then you've got Walker Bueller, the hotshot, who's next in line. And the one thing about Trevor Bauer that we also know is that he's an attention whore. Like, he really wants to be the guy who is the face of whatever team he's on and the face of the game. It's why he's so active on Twitter, uh, even outside of being awful on Twitter, he's so active. It's why he's got the YouTube channel. Like, he wants to be, like, the face of millennial or Gen Z era baseball. And the fact of the matter is, at best, he can be number three on this Dodgers staff and really much further down in terms of the roster as a whole. And that's probably is not going to be a good thing at a certain point, either this year or next. I mean, absent substances, he's not even number three. He's like <laughs> four or five on that Dodger 
rotation. Yeah. I, yeah, I think that is not a great dynamic. I, I saw him tweet something, Trevor Bauer, that is not Clayton Kershaw, Walker Bueller. Um, I saw him tweet something yesterday about wanting to be left alone in his residence or whatever. And and this really hit home for me. So Ken knows this. I, I think a couple other people know this, but I have lived in a building um couple of years that has a few players in it and see them like walking around or whatever. And I, I don't say hi all the time or like even try to like notice who they are or whatever. I, I recognize that these are just guys coming back and forth <laughs> from the ballpark and every now and again, you know, they'll like smile or wave or whatever. And that's great. Um, but if you're in LA and you're going to one of the big cities where stardom is a thing and where, where in normal times, tourists go to like see stars and to see people they recognize. I don't really think that there's this like veil of anonymity that you can request. And the fact that he's requesting it before he's been there for like a week is just weird to me. I just, I don't know. I just feel like that might not be a good fit under a, he's never really had a press corps that is going to pay the amount of attention to him that he is going to get in Los Angeles. Right. And I think that, you know, I saw this a lot when I lived in Boston, because Boston's one of those cities where if you're not used to the attention, the bright lights can get to you real fast. And the press corps is not really interested in soft peddling things. They write a lot of stories that are hard on players, and it can be a place where players really struggle if they let that get into their head. Uh, New York is notorious for this. Chicago less so, but Chicago still has an element of that. Trevor Bauer's never played in one of those environments. Right. He hasn't played, he, like Cleveland and Cincinnati are not pressure cookers, right? Mm -hmm. LA kind of is. Coming off a World Series, Los Angeles is a little bit of a pressure cooker. I think that could get in his head a little bit. Yeah, I think the interesting thing about the big markets that aren't the East Coast markets like LA and Chicago is that because they're not Boston, New York, or Philly, I think a lot of baseball people who don't really know baseball outside of the East Coast assume that once you get beyond like those big three, that it's all like the same, that baseball is just kind of covered casually. And when you get into Chicago, uh, and this has happened several times with the Cubs, and I have to imagine in LA, it happens a lot as well. You realize that, oh no, this is a giant media market. And it turns out people do care. Like maybe not to the crushing extent that they do in all the, the big three Northeast ones, but it's a lot. And a lot of people aren't prepared for how much it is. And I think that's a, that's a very good point, especially coming off of, Cleveland, Cincinnati, and even Arizona at the start, then none of those compare to what the Dodgers mean to not just their city, but that entire region. I mean, that that is a nationwide team. It's got fans across the country. So the media is going to reflect that, and Trevor Bauer is going to be covered to reflect that media coverage. And uh, yeah, that that I mean, as a non-Dodger fan, there's part of me that uh, wants to grab the popcorn and do the Stephen Colbert gif impression watching this. But uh, yeah, it's going to be a thing. Trevor Bauer is also kind of, we discussed on Twitter, kind of leading up to this, emblematic of a culture in baseball that keeps getting exposed during this offseason that we talked about kind of the beginning of the conversation, especially as it regards to female fans and reporters, that baseball for too long has been kind of fine with looking the other way uh, and even telling stories of like genuine harassment, almost as if they're charming character traits or anecdotes. Like I think back to, you know, Jack Morris uh, giving the very infamous answer of the only time I, I want to see a woman to see me 
when I'm naked, when talking about female reporters in the locker room, the only time I want to see or be around a woman when I'm naked is if I'm on top of her, or she's on top of me, as if, ha ha, that's great locker room humor. And I mean, we've seen examples several times this past offseason between the Jared Porter fiasco and the new Mickey Calloway fiasco that it almost makes you think, are, have, has baseball improved at all since the days of like Jack Morris and Dave Kingman? Well, I, I think it has improved, but I actually want to go back. I want to back up a little bit beyond Jared Porter and Mickey Calloway for this conversation, because the place where I thought this was really interesting was in watching all of the hand-wringing over Hall of Fame ballots from our favorite writers in the BBWA, who all of the sudden, it's like they discovered the character clause for the first time in 2021, and it hasn't existed since 1936. And all of the sudden, they have they have these like, I don't know if I can vote for Roger Clemens. That's that that was terrible. Like, you know, it's like, come on, buddy. Like, I re- as I was reading some of these things, in particular, um, you know, Ken Rosenthal wrote his piece where he's like, this might be my last Hall of Fame ballot. I was like, really? <laughs> like, it's so hard for you to recognize that bad character doesn't justify a, a trip to the Hall of Fame that you just can't do it anymore. Like, that is spoken like a man who's never had to think about this before, right? Um, Mark Carrick, who I like a lot, had a piece that he literally spoke to like a neuroscientist to try to figure out why his Hall of Fame ballot was so hard. And I was just huh. like, the hand, the hand wringing over this is like out of control. Women deal with this every day. Mm-hmm. If you are a fan of baseball and you're a woman, you deal with attention in your fandom constantly because your team brings back Addison Russell. And you have to deal with that. Your team brings in Araldis Chapman to win a World Series. And you just have to deal with that. It's something I saw my LGBTQ friends struggle with when the Cubs signed Daniel Murphy. And they had to deal with that. And that was, you know, it's a tension. They put your personhood and who you are and your history and things that have happened to you on display in tension with one of your favorite things that is supposed to be a break from everything, right? And it was amazing to watch this whole core of writers just all of a sudden, it's like the world opened up and they felt tension for the first time Mm -hmm. and they didn't understand what to do about it. And meanwhile, the women who have been covering this game, the trans writers who have been covering this game, the LGBTQ writers who have been covering this game are like, welcome to my world. Like this is baseball fandom for my whole life. This is what I've had to deal with, right? And so- Yes, I think baseball's gotten better. Like, we should admit and be happy that there's some tension and hand-wringing and, oh my gosh, maybe I shouldn't put Kurt Schilling in the Hall of Fame. But, like, it's nowhere near enough. And I think that MLB's recent response to the Jared Porter and Mickey Calloway situations with their new harassment policy is a good example of they're, like, 15 years (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> off of where they should be. I think it was Brick Roley at The Athletic tweeted after Lindsay Adler broke the story about the harassment policy that now front office staff will also be required to take harassment and discrimination training just like the players do each spring training. <laughs> and I'm like, are you the only workplace in America that doesn't have mandatory harassment and discrimination training? Because as a teacher, 10 years ago, every year, I had to sit through the same presentation. It was was mandated by law. 
that we sat through a presentation on what to do in the instance of harassments in, in schools, what the process was, who you went to, what the reporting obligations were, that you don't have a choice. Like if a kid says, I'm being harassed, you have to take it seriously and literally, and you have to report it up the chain. And that starts a whole thing and you have to do whatever you need to do in that situation. I've been in those situations. It's not comfortable. It's not something that you want. It's not a situation anybody wants to be in. But so the idea that like front offices in Major League Baseball are mandating it now in the year of our Lord 2021. Wow. <laughs> like, thank you for doing that. But you should have done this 30 years ago when everybody else did it. It's it's such a baseball thing, isn't it? It's like, I mean, we see this happen on the field all the time, whether it's, you know, the steroids controversy or the sign stealing scandal with Houston. Obviously, much less serious issues in the face of what we're talking about in terms of a culture of harassment. But it's the same kind of pattern where baseball's approach to a problem is always, well, let's just pretend it's not happening. Let's let's see if we can just kind of get through this and move on until something else happens. And it just that allows it to grow and fester and expand over a period of time to the point where it suddenly explodes and everybody becomes aware of it because of a giant national scandal, as happens every time from Ken Caminiti to the Astros reporting to Jared Porter to Mickey Calloway. And all of a sudden, baseball then has to backtrack and go, oh, okay, well, let's throw all of this stuff that we should have been doing 10, 15 years ago at this right now. And that'll solve everything immediately. So it's, it's always... It's, it's never getting out in front of the problem. It's never recognizing that there is a problem to get out in front of to begin with. And it's always trying to fix it in retrospect. And there, there, there are just, nobody in baseball seems to know what decade it is ever. And it is incredibly frustrating as a baseball fan to feel like you have to keep sticking up for a sport that is always, as you say, 10, 15 years lagging behind where it should be. Were you watching the Cubs game last season? I don't remember if it was the day that they honored Jackie Robinson or the day that they honored the hundred year anniversary of the Negro leagues or which it was one of those two. And there they have um, a bunch of front office types up on the rooftops. They had actually done before that, like an anti-racism. It wasn't really a rally, but for, it was like a, like a meeting outside in Gallagher way for their staff. And there was, you know, I actually, I watched about half of it. I happened to be walking by, so I got to see what was going on. I was impressed with who they brought in. They had a lot of speakers, a lot of community organizers from Chicago coming in, talking about real tangible ways that the Cubs staff could have an impact beyond just like slogans and t-shirts and all of these types of things. I, they were, it looked like they were going to follow through on some things like voter registration drives and the diverse neighborhoods in Chicago, making sure that they were making connections with communities and stuff. I, I was impressed with the thought process that went behind it. So later that night, uh, the people who had helped organize that and had worked on that, they're up on a rooftop. They get interviewed during the game. And in this interview, and I'm going to blank on her name, and I feel bad about this because she obviously is doing God's work. Um, this woman is up there and she's gets introduced as the new diversity, equality, and inclusion coordinator for the Cubs, which is a new position that the Cubs invented in 2020. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, this, ra this rally gra gathering, whatever you want to call it, was outstanding. This work was good. The fact that you waited until 2020 uh -huh. 
to hire someone to tell you what you need to be needed to be doing 15 years ago is just a gut punch. Yeah. Why couldn't you do this 15 years ago and be on the cutting edge of some of this stuff? Why did it take 2020 to get you there? Right. And I, that's where baseball always is. And I, I love so much about this sport and it is the most infuriating thing at the same time. Yeah. If baseball is lucky that it is just the best goddamn sport in the world, because if it weren't like there would be no point to devoting so much mental energy and, and putting up with so much in order to follow it. Uh, Sarah Sanchez, do you have anything to plug while I still have you here? You know, I've been doing some research um, following this ball stuff that's going on. I don't know if you've been reading about MLB last Friday, a week ago, as we're recording, released a memo to teams that then somehow got leaked to The Athletic for publication on Monday, announcing they're planning to deaden the ball for 2021. And I thought this was kind of fascinating, particularly when... Hours later, Sports Illustrated publishes the latest round of Dr. Meredith Wills's work. And for those of you who have not been following Dr. Wills, you, you have to get on this train because she's brilliant and she's independent and she's literally just been dissecting baseballs to measure them and measure the pill and measure the yarn and measure the stitching and everything else to try to figure out why the balls have been so erratic over the last few years. You know, we've had record home run spikes in 2017, 2019, and then in 2020, things got a little erratic and there were spikes in some places and not in other places. And she has just done a great job tracking all of this and following it. Anyway, I, th- I was stunned <laughs> that MLB only admitted their plans to deaden the ball after Sports Illustrated contacted them for comment on Dr. Wills's story. And then it was it was literally just like they were trying to get out ahead of it. It was a PR move. They were like, let's see if we can quickly send a memo and we'll admit to this and we'll get it in the athletic. And then that story will be the story instead of the story that Dr. Wills is telling, which is fascinating, by the way. There are secret codes on the baseballs, apparently, that tell you where, when they've been made. There's There are codes about like that she broke that are on the inside of the leather when you like yeah, it's totally insane. But the best part of this whole thing is you've got people at the beginning who are like, I can't give you my real name because if MLB finds out <laughs> I've been smuggling balls out to get studied by Dr. Wills, I will get fired. Oh, like, if this is some CIA stuff, absolute wow. CIA stuff. And it turns out they have been messing with the ball. And like, sure. it's provable. And now they've admitted it. And I am, look, I, I am not an astrophysicist. I'm not going to pretend to know what happens when you shave a gram off the pill or like make the stitches a little bit thicker or whatever. I rely on Dr. Wills to tell me (laughs) what those results are, but I will tell you this. I don't think anybody at MLB knows what those changes do to the baseball either, because if they did, there wouldn't have been the massive type of shifts that we've seen. There would have been much smaller incremental shifts. And I think when they tell you, Oh, we're just deadening the ball back to 2017 levels. They have no idea if they're doing that or not. They have no idea how that plays with wind resistance or with certain parts or whatever. The one, the one of the hidden gems in the athletic piece, if you go back and read it, is that they're putting in five humidors at parks this year. They don't tell you where. Hmm. We're not going to find out which baseball parks have those humidors until later. Yeah. So if you want to know, like if you're putting a roster together and you're trying to figure out what pitchers you should get, you don't really know if they're going to be using humidor balls or balls that are slightly different than the balls that they've been 
playing with for however long, et cetera, et cetera. And I honestly, this is, this is a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> like you're, so, you're yeah. messing with the chaos. equipment in the game. Yeah. The total chaos theory in 2021. Excellent. Uh, and your, your pieces on this are available at bleedcubbyblue.com. And I'll put a link to those in the Twitter feed for the, when I plug the show. And uh, excellent. Uh, Sarah, this is, as always, been great to have you on. Yeah, it's been fun. Ken, you're one of my favorite people in Chicago, and I miss being able to hang out with you in person. I cannot wait till we can do it again. I miss hanging out as well, and I can't wait until we're back in Wrigley sometime this summer. Let's just say that. Let's put it out in the universe and make it happen. It's a deal. We're done. <laughs>